This is the new episode of Man on a Silver Mountain. The idea for this episode came from uh, Patreon bro, Joe Maduro. Uh, Basically, it's a list in no particular order of books and writing that have played a big part in my life. It's kind of a cool idea. We talk a lot about music and movies here, uh, so why not get into the literary side of things? Before we get started, I'd like to thank the Patreon crew for their continued support. If you are a Patreon supporter, uh, just a reminder to check your inboxes because the first bonus episode has been sent to you, Guide to Important Music. I'm going to be doing these every month. The first episode is a QA with my good friend and former bandmate, Taz Niles, who... um, was a founding member of the band La Gratona, which some of you may be familiar with since I've been talking and writing about them for the past 10 years. They were like a underappreciated band from the mid-90s, early 90s in Boston. And uh, you know, they were just a little bit ahead of their time, I think. And um, pretty obscure. Some people know about them. Tortuga Records uh, did a career retrospective discography, which I had the honor of writing some of the liner notes to. And um, yeah, just uh, more people should know about them. So anyway, the first bonus episode is a QA with Taz talking about the band. So um, if you're a Patreon subscriber, uh, this is the link to this is going to be in your inbox. And um, you can download it for free via SoundCloud. And... Um, yeah, every month I'll be doing something different uh, on this format. I'm pretty excited. Some some months it'll just be me talking about a variety of different bands and a recommended playlist and that kind of stuff. So um so yeah, check it out. And um, you know, once again, thank you very much for your continued support. If you want to support the podcast via Patreon, please head over to everythingwentblackmedia.com. And there is a pop-up that will take you to the site. Describes uh, all the different tiers, the golds, all that kind of stuff. And for as little as $1 a month, you can keep the lights on around here and help us get more stuff done. If you don't want to be a Patreon, another way you can help is to just you know, tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, you know, Like it on social media. 
repost the episodes, uh, write iTunes, iTunes, write iTunes reviews, you know, that sort of stuff. Also, um, for those of you uh, who aren't familiar with Gimme Radio, uh, I have a, an ongoing regular show there uh, called The Sacred and Profane. And uh, Gimme is a 24-7 streaming service, which is free. Um, all you got to do is download the app or check it out online, gimmeradio.com. Uh, and it's all metal. It's all metal, extreme music, punk, hardcore, black metal, death metal, you know. My show actually encompasses, you know, pretty much the standards. Punk, black metal, death metal, straight up heavy metal, grind. But I also flavor in some stuff like um, Fields of the Nephilim and Death Rock and, you know, a little bit side-to-side action there, not just a straight-down-the-middle, you know, um, perspective that, uh, you know, one might think is part of the whole, you know, vibe over there. Also, on uh, the coming weeks, I'll be making another important announcement about my involvement with Gimme Radio. So please stay tuned and, uh, you know, check it out. I have a show which is uh, going to be dropping this Friday at 2, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you're so inclined, check it out. Maybe beforehand you can uh, download the, the app and uh, check out the show. It's a variety of different stuff, and I think that if you're a fan of the work that I do with the band and my writing and all this other stuff and the podcasting, you'll probably enjoy um, the playlist that I put together. In a few days, Vince from Metal Sucks will be joining us for a podcast episode. Uh, Metal Sucks has been at the forefront of a number of controversial opinions in the metal world these days. So, uh, you know, Vince and I have been in touch you know, uh, I actually, a few months ago, I posted a, uh, an episode condemning Antifa. And I think I might have uh, mentioned some stuff about Metal Sucks in that episode. So it'll be cool for the two of us to get together and just kind of discuss the state of the metal scene. Um, you know, PC versus freedom, that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I don't know, I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty excited about that. On the Tombs front, we're gearing up to play some dates next month. Um, you can check all these dates out if you go over to our Facebook page or at tombscult.com. I don't know if the schedule's posted. It's a relatively short uh, run of dates, uh, mostly in the Northeast. And uh, one of the coolest dates is New York City. We're playing with Godflesh, and I'm really, really excited about that one. Uh, playing with Godflesh is on my quote-unquote bucket list, even though I hate that term. Um, that is on my bucket list. So I'm hoping to see some of you guys. We're hitting Toronto, uh, you know, New York City. We're playing RPM Festival. Should be a fun time, summertime vibes. You know, if you guys are at any of the shows, feel free to stop by and say hello. And uh, looking forward to seeing you guys out there. Speaking of tombs, if you want to check out uh, some of our merch, you can head over to holymountainprinting.com. That's our exclusive U.S. merchandiser. If you're in Europe, you can pick up Tombs merch at lhpmerch.com. And um, that's our, uh, our go-to people over in Europe for all the Tombs merch. We just started working with them, so right now we only have one design up there. But, you know, keep going back to the web store, paying attention to the Instagram and other social media. And we'll have some really cool designs 
that um, are going to be posting up there fairly soon. So that's it for uh, for news. And um, so now we're going to get into this episode here. So this is actually harder than I thought to put together a comprehensive list of books. Uh, so I didn't do that. <laughs> I just maybe, maybe we'll revisit this in another episode. But what I did is I just no particular order. I think I grabbed a bunch of stuff that I've been reading over the years that I found myself returning to and that I think have kind of helped mold uh, who I am and my sort of approach to life and my approach to art, my approach to just doing all this stuff. So, um, you know, that's pretty much what this list is. And if any of you guys haven't, you know, aren't familiar with some of these uh, authors or some of this work, um, I urge you to check it out because I got a lot of a lot out of this stuff over the last, you know, several decades of my life. So the first one, actually this, this piece, it's not a book, it's actually a poem. And it's uh, by Charles Bukowski, and it's called Roll the Dice. And I remember being a young man in my 20s, and I first uh, read this, and, uh, you know, it, it sort of motivated me, and, um, Definitely has been something that's with me, you know, for most of the endeavors in my life. It's one of those things that kind of kept me on track during the low points in my life, uh, during the times when I thought about giving up, uh, the times where I thought about just the pointlessness of trying to do things. And I always go back to this poem and, um, it sort of sets me straight, puts me back on the right path, you know, writes my mind. So it's short, <clears throat> And I'm just going to read it for you guys. You know, it's uh, if you, you know, it's, it's that important to me that I think you guys should know it. So, if you're going to try, go all the way. Otherwise, don't even start. If you're going to try, go all the way. This could mean losing girlfriends, wives, relatives, jobs, and maybe your mind. <clears throat> go all the way. It could mean not eating for three or four days. It could mean freezing on a park bench. It could mean jail. It could mean derision, mockery, isolation. Isolation is the gift. All the others are a test of your endurance, of how much you really want to do it. And you'll do it, despite rejection and the worst odds. And it will be better than anything else you can imagine. If you're going to try, go all the way. There is no other feeling like that. You will be alone with the gods, and the nights will flame with fire. Do it, do it, do it, do it. All the way. All the way. You will ride life straight to perfect laughter. It's the only good fight there is. So that's it. Um... I always get a little choked up when I read that one because it just resonates so deeply. And, uh, you know, specifically, uh, if you're trying to do anything creative, anything where you have to create something out of nothing, um, it's a hard, you know, it's just a hard way to exist in the world. And a guy like Charles Bukowski, someone I discovered at a young age, you know, my early 20s after college, um, I mean, I went, to, I went to school and I didn't 
get exposed to a lot of um, liberal arts stuff and good authors in college because my degree was mostly associated with boring stuff like thermodynamics and calculus. So uh, after I got out of school and I was unleashed on society, uh, Bukowski sort of drifted into my consciousness, primarily because I heard Henry Rollins talk about him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's writing for a young man, you know, writing for young people who are trying to figure out how they're going to exist in this society and what their path in life is going to be. And, um, yeah, Bukowski is uh, from a different era, and it's probably a life that in our modern society we can't really relate too much to. And uh, I feel like, well, you'll see on this list, there's a couple, there's three writers in particular. There's Charles Bukowski, John Fonte, and Ernest Hemingway that I have on here. And they all feel very connected in my mind, um, especially Hemingway and Bukowski, because their fascination with, uh, you know, living this kind of low life, uh, boxing, um, you know, physical endurance, uh, loneliness, isolation, uh, all that sort of stuff is like, I felt like that's been, you know, kind of tailing me for most of my life. So that was Roll the Dice by Charles Bukowski. Um, next up, and once again, I mentioned John Fonte, so... There's a uh, novel called Ask the Dust, and um, similar to, to, to Bukowski, who created a character called Henry Chinaski, who um, essentially it's, it's a autobiographic, auto, essentially it's an autobiographical essay about himself. So Arturo Bandini is basically John Fonte. So the two authors kind of approach their work in a similar fashion. They, you know, make up these characters names that are essentially themselves and though the storylines and plots might not be strictly autobiographical the characters themselves are based on the essence of the writers so you know for example um yeah i don't know if uh john fonte ever uh, fell in love with a woman named camila but i imagine arturo bandini who is the main character in ask the dust probably reacts to the situations the same way that John Fonte would. So, I mean, the plot of this is basically uh, Bandini. He's a struggling writer, similar to John Fonte himself, living in depression area, depression era L.A. Um, you know, he's living on like orange zest and a prayer. He finds himself in a, in a cafe somewhere and he falls in love with a, with a waitress named Camila. Now, of course, you know, he doesn't ride off into the sunset with her. She's in love with a guy named Sam who hates her. From here, the sad tale unfolds. It's very Italian. It's very Catholic. And, you know, it has a sad, tragic ending. And um, anyway, John Fonte, I think I read an interview with Charles Bukowski, and he mentioned him as an influence. So I figured, wow, I'm so you know, heavily into Charles Bukowski. So let me check out this John Fonte guy. So yeah, there we go. John Fonte, Ask the Dusk. I think if you haven't read anything by him, starting with that book would probably be um, a pretty cool place to get familiar with him. Um, you know, along with Bukowski, his novel, uh, Ham on Rye, 
is uh, another work, I think, that I found to be quite influential on me. A lot of his short stories, I mean, Bukowski wrote a ton of short stories and poems, and, you know, some of the poetry's cool, but, you know, most of it, you know, I'm not a big reader of that style, so, um, you know, roll, roll the Dice for sure was something that hit me right across the, right in the gut when I read it the first time, but uh, Hammond Rye is a novel, um, one of his few novels. Of course, just, uh, we have Henry Chinaski. He's a sem, you know, it's like basically Bukowski. Similar to the Fonte book, it's uh, Depression LA. And um, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, coming of age young man trying to find his place in the world. Um, you know, it's like the sort of down and out version of Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Um, sort of approaching the subject matter from a different perspective. And actually, it's been, it's been rumored that Ham on Rye is actually a play on words of Catcher in the Rye. So, so Ham on Rye is another good place to uh, start with, um, with Bukowski. Now, Hemingway, the third in this kind of like triumvirate of uh, writers, um, man, I, I couldn't, if you... What always comes up when you say what's your, your go-to Ernest Hemingway stuff? For me, it's the Nick Adams stories. I remember way back in high school, <clears throat> we read these. And I was like, you know, totally blown away by it because, you know, it's, it's that time of your life. You're like a young man and the Nick Adams stories essentially kind of follow this character in different stages of his life. The short, they're all short stories, and you can buy a collection of the short stories, and it's been published a couple times, several times over the years. And um, what I've done here is I've listed out a couple of my favorites um, that really uh, kind of touched me growing up, and I still, I still uh, read these. I mean, I still go back and reread some of these stories. That's how much I love them. So, I mean, um, you know, Indian Camp is one. In, uh, in India Camp... Um, you know, Nick accompanies his father to a camp of Native Americans, you know, hence the uh, marginally racist Indian camp, uh, to deliver a baby. And um, it's an, an emergency C-section is required. And, you know, Nick, because there's no one else there to help, Nick actually has to assist his dad in delivering a baby via cesarean. And, uh, you know, Nick's a young man at this time. During the operation the father of the baby slits his throat and um you know the the story it's kind of like this meditation it's like an initiation in, into the real world you know of a young man his father is a um you know a doctor so you know he probably lives a fairly uh, comfortable life and as a result of having to experience probably his first taste of the real world and real life and mortality um, I imagine a, a you know situation like that changes him. You know, you're probably like before that, before you'd actually seen death and life together in the same instant. You're probably a different person than afterwards, and uh, you know that's something I've always um, been interested in. Is like initiations and rites of passage and that sort of thing and, and being changed by 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 events and uh this move this movie yeah this this book the short story 
you know, really covers all those bases. And that's, um, you know, another one of my favorites. And then um, next up on this list here is The End of Something, short story. In this, uh, we find Nick maybe a few years later. You know, it's these two crazy kids, Nick and Marjorie. They go fishing. And um, Nick basically breaks up with Marjorie by basically saying to her that this, this isn't fun anymore. You know, and she's upset. She leaves. Nick, distraught, lays face down on his blanket. And uh, one of his buddies rolls up and asks him how the breakup went. And um, so they sort of indicate to you that this has been a premeditated, planned sort of situation. You know, Nick trips out on him and, um, you know, kind of gets upset with his friend. And you get the feeling, it's inferred, that Nick believes that he made a mistake. So once again, dealing with the early heartbreak, knowing that something might not be right, and dealing with that, but still feeling no problem. My, my interpretation of this thing is that Nick really knew what was going on. Like he knew that he had to get out of this thing. It wasn't working anymore. But there's still, after it's all said and done, that feeling of, you know, maybe I should have waited this out. There's like that, that doubts, the doubts creep into your mind. So I guess that story is dealing with doubts. And, and just the confusion that arises in love at an early age. The last two stories that I'm going to talk about here uh, with respect to Nick Adams take place later in his life. And um, one's called The Killers. And, uh, you know, t- Nick's working in a, in a cafe somewhere. And these uh, two hitmen roll up and they're looking for uh, this guy, Ole Andresen who's a Swedish boxer. And apparently he goes to this uh, cafe all the time to eat. So he was, they were given information that he was going to be there. So the, the two murderers, they tie up Nick and uh, the cook, and they're waiting it out. And uh, that's, that's actually how they, they discover that these two guys are looking for Anderson because, it, you know, they're saying we're looking for this guy and he doesn't show up. So they leave. They let, you know, they untie the guys and Nick hands over, he heads over to um, Anderson's place and to tell him about the murderers that are coming to, uh, to take him out. So um, Anderson basically feels resigned to the fact that ultimately these guys are going to kill him and that he just kind of lays down on his bed and says there's nothing that can be done. Um, so though he isn't killed in the story you get the feeling that ultimately you know death finds him nick heads back to the lunchroom he tells uh you know the people there about this uh, reaction that andres had had and no one seems to care everyone seems to be like oh you know c'est la vie at that point nick decides to leave town and he just bails and uh you know just sort of like this kind of cold empty feeling at the end of that story now, the last of the four short stories I want to mention is my favorite Nick Adams story. It's called The, Bat- the Battler. And um, there was actually a, uh, a, a short film made um, of this with uh, 
you know, it was black and white. It was, but they expanded on the story quite a bit. And the short story itself only probably only takes place if you were to time it out in real time. The story probably only takes place in the span of maybe 30 minutes. But the um, the film adaption of this starring Paul Newman, uh, you know, it has all these flashbacks and really beefs up the backstory. So we find Nick, you know, a young man riding the trains across America and he gets caught. And the, the, the boss on the train punches him in the eye and throws him off, okay? So now he's, like, on the, somewhere along the train tracks. He's walking. And then he finds an encampment. And uh, there's this guy sitting there. And, um, you know, basically starts talking to this dude. And uh, it turns out that his face is all beat up. And, uh, you know, uh, he looks kind of, like, gnarly. But he's a, you know, a um, friendly enough guy. It turns out that the, the dude is Ad Francis. He's a, a former boxing champion who is, uh, you know, ended up on hard times. So um, Nick tells, uh, tells Ad his whole story. And, um, you know, and uh, Ad tells Nick that, you know, it's cool that you're, you know you're tough and you handle things like a man and all this kind of stuff. So um, they things start getting really dark, and um, you know, Ad asks him if he's ever been crazy, and basically he tells Nick that he's crazy, and um, things start to get really uncomfortable. You know, he says things like "I'm not quite right." Um. You know, the guy wants to see Nick's knife, <laughs> which is probably a bad idea to just let a crazy guy see your your knife. And then Bugs, I forgot to mention that there's a, another dude named Bugs that's been hanging out. He rolls up. He tells uh, Ad to leave Nick alone. And when he refuses to, he knocks him unconscious and takes the knife. And he tells Nick that, hey, man, you better be on your way. You know, they. so then Nick gets his knife and he just leaves. And... um I guess the the fascination I have with those last two is that the character of Nick Adams, you you um, assume that since his father is a doctor, that he comes from uh, you know a fairly solid upbringing, um, middle class guy. Um, yet he finds once that he, he became a certain age. I mean, and then once again, this is me reading into this because it's never actually outwardly stated in any of the stories that there's like this um, yearning and sort of dissatisfaction with just the normal world of being, you know, going to college maybe, maybe following your dad's footsteps and becoming a doctor yourself. And I feel you get the feeling that Nick Adams just craves experience. You know, there's like riding the rails, you know, there's a lot of you know boxers always show up in in the stories. There's like um, potential violence, life and death, um, adversity, like all these things. And it, there was a choice made by Nick Adams where he could have stayed in the safe confines of the world that he knew. Yet he decided to step out into the world and experience life in a way that he but what he found fulfilling. 
by putting himself in danger, by putting himself in harm's way. You know, and, and all through my life, I've always thought that I put myself in harm's way a lot of times. A lot of, um, you know, I could have just stayed home. I could have followed a path that was clear cut, but yet I put myself in these different situations where I had to creatively figure a way out. And that was um, essentially what Nick Ad- the Nick Adams stories really, really touch on that. So, you know, Hemingway's great. Hemingway's cool. He's an awesome writer. I love how the, the sort of uh, laconic, um, efficient use of language that he has, which both Font- John Fonte and Charles Bukowski sort of fall the same, and they follow the same uh, you know, cadence with their writing. So now for the next book, we're going to change things up a little bit. Um, Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko Willink. Um, I hate to use the term self-help, but it kind of is a self-help book where it basically demonstrates to you that though when you say the word discipline, you might think of, uh, you know, maybe being confined or adhering to a certain routine or something that seems prohibitive. However, by applying discipline to your life, you actually become free because inside of these routines, you prepare your mind and you open your mind to other possibilities, you know, and without discipline, you actually do fall sort of into like this lethargic you know, melancholy a lot of times. So anyway, it's, um, it's a really quick read. There's a lot of pictures, a lot of big print. Um, but it's like something that's good to have around the house, especially if you're trying to, to get, get after it, as Jocko likes to say. A little bit about Jocko. Um, he served in the Navy SEALs for 20 years. He commanded SEAL Team 3, Task Team Bruiser. It was in the Battle of Ramadi in the Iraq War. Uh, right now, you know, he's an author, uh, you know, he, he has a great podcast and, you know, he also runs a company, which I believe has to do with, uh, you know, like organizing like uh, leadership and things like that. And that's called Echelon Front. So, yeah, definitely check out his uh, his podcast, too. And uh, he's got a couple of books. I've read this one and um, I have another one. Uh, which I haven't started reading yet, which is called uh, Extreme Ownership. And um, I'm looking to find some more answers to some of my questions in there, too. So now, into some more fiction. Um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. One of the heaviest books I've ever read in my life, ever. And uh, I remember, you know, I'd, I'd been familiar with a lot of his work and really enjoyed, you know, Child of God, All the Pretty Horses, Blood Meridian. Like, all these books are great. But I really do feel like The Road is probably McCarthy's shining achievement when it comes to his, uh, his writing. I remember reading this. I, um, I bought the book and then... <clears throat> for my job, I had to go to Kalamazoo, Michigan for five days. And it was like in the middle of the winter. And uh, I had just started reading this book on the plane over to Kalamazoo. And it was like, 
definitely not a feel-good book. It's it's in some sort of post-apocalyptic world. You know, there's no hope for survival. It seems like all the resources are depleted. Nothing's growing. All the animals are dead. And there's just like a few survivors trying to eke out an existence primarily by scavenging food and by preying on them on each other and cannibalism and uh it's just a dark exploration man and um one of the darkest most unforgettable parts of the book was like where the main character is instructing his son on how to kill himself the best way if in case things get too bad and uh that was just like the biggest like downer of the entire book but Nonetheless, um, if you haven't read this, check it out. I'm not going to give the ending away, but there is actually a ray of hope at the ending. And, um, but it, it takes a very twisted, deeply disturbing path to get to the light at the end of the book. So yeah, definitely check it out. There's a movie that came out um, with Viggo Mortensen. A great movie, but for sure, check out the book. Read the book. Enjoy it. Enjoying it is not necessarily uh you know i don't i don't know if you're going to necessarily enjoy it but i feel like the book is a is quite a good uh good read um there's a book called the war of art by stephen pressfield which i read a few years ago this is almost a companion to uh, the jocko willink book discipline is freedom because one of the things that this book uh, identifies is our tendency to get in our own way to procrastinate to put all these obstacles in front of ourselves and you know this has a lot to do with any anyone out there who's trying to you know be a writer or do creative things or you know work on their own projects um and i fall into this trap as well we'll find anything anything any reason to not sit down and do our work you know it's like Oh, yeah, okay, I'll do the dishes first, then I'm going to sit down and write. Or, you know what, I think I need to sweep and vacuum the living room, and then I'll start practicing my guitar. Or, oh, yeah, I got to go shopping. I got to go to the grocery store. And then when I get back, I'll end up doing all this work I have. You know, it's like, you know, do we love shopping? Do we love doing the dishes? Do we love sweeping and vacuuming? Um, No, those are chores. Theoretically, we love doing the things we love. However, when we level up and, and step up into the world of like, all right, we're doing this for real, we'll find every excuse to not do it. And this book helps us deal with that tendency. And I think that it's a must read for anyone out there who's trying to, um, you know, just to get after it and do things differently and just try to live like a different style of life. So. So yeah, check it out, The War of Art. It's also kind of a cool title, too. So I'm just going to run down the rest of these books here. Um, Food of the Gods by Terrence McKenna. Um, if you don't know who he is, he's a ethnobotanist, lecturer, psychonaut, psychedelic guru, uh, huge personality, Um He's like a more sensible Timothy Leary. Now, Timothy Leary, to me, always seemed just like this, this dude who was just trying to get laid and have, like, young girls around him all the time. You know, which is cool, but um, I feel like Terrence McKenna is 
work was a little bit came a little bit more from like um the standpoint of trying to help people and trying to better humanity and like you know help us understand who we are where we came from that kind of stuff so you know food of the gods is uh basically his long form description of the stoned ape theory which is uh you know, and I don't know if I believe this 100%, but essentially how mushrooms helped Homo erectus uh, evolve into the homo, the modern-day man or Homo sapien. Now, I think uh, there's definitely some interesting points to be made. Um, you know, at that particular time, Homo erectus was looking for new food, su- food supplies, you know, and uh, trying out different things and... He may have found uh, cubensis mushrooms out in the savannas somewhere and decided to try these things as a food supply. And then the psychedelic effects, uh, you know, may have taken a certain faction of that population and given them experiences that may have motivated them to do different things where over a couple million, you know, 100,000 years or whatever would cause that different branch to end up becoming Homo sapiens. Now, the book goes into a lot of different things, like how small doses, like, you know, and this is actually proven that if you take, if you microdose, quote-unquote, mushrooms, that you can see things, your your reaction times are quicker, your... Uh, you're more sensitive to certain things. Um, you know, and that external stimulus may have taken a certain part of that population and motivated them into different things, which natural selection would cause other, you know, evolutionary characteristics to arise. So, yeah, there's something to be said. I don't, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea. Um, I think this, the book itself is interesting because it, sort of gives you a another way of seeing things you know now I'm, I'm not a scientist i'm no you know i don't know anything about uh evolution necessarily in in a scientific sense that is um but you know it's an interesting concept and i think that it's a good open-minded way to to see things as a companion to food of the gods i recommend supernatural by graham hancock and uh you know, once again, it explores the evolution of the ancient mind by um, by the introduction of psychedelics, and in this in this book, it's more concerned with you know art, you know the emergence of art, cave paintings, um, and how that coincided with uh, you know once again the mushrooms, you know psychedelic mushrooms, and how that sparked creativity and opened up the mind of early man to create art because it happened roughly at the same time but all across the globe at different points you know in south america this similar and how some of the experience and some of the subjects that are depicted in these paintings are similar now i know that there's the the alien conspiracy people out there who believe that you know um, early man was visited by you know aliens and on spacecraft and you know that some of these like dragon-like creatures are actually spaceships and things like that which you know that might be true too or it might be just early man tripping out on mushrooms and seeing this basically the same things in their visions and depicting them in these cave paintings so i mean that's uh 
It's a great book, you know, definitely check it out if you're interested in that. And um, I mean, he's a great speaker, Graham Hancock, similar to Terrence McKenna, who's also a great speaker. So I encourage everyone to check him out on YouTube, Um, you know, especially Graham Hancock. He's still alive, so he's doing appearances. There's I think there's a TED talk with him. Some of his other books are Fingerprints of the Gods and Underworld. Definitely great, you know, things to read. Um, Terrence McKenna, there's a podcast called The Psychedelic Salon that um, is like an archive of thousands of hours of him giving lectures and speaking. So that, that's something to check out. If, if you read the Terrence McKenna book and you're fascinated by that, definitely look up The Psychedelic Salon. Now, I mean... I can't leave H.P. Lovecraft off of this list, but, um, you know, he, most of his work is short stories. So for me, it kind of goes down to like maybe, uh, you know, uh, three, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Some dude in a loony bin is having these visions <laughs> of other worlds uh, from beyond. An electronic device stimulates the pineal gland to see into the other dimensions. And then the doom that came over Innsmouth, which is part of the Cthulhu mythos. That's a weird sea folk. You know, the old ones, it's all in there. And uh, one of the things to keep in mind about Lovecraft is that there's not a lot of action in, in the books, or in the stories, rather. That's why a lot of the films that have been based on H.P. Lovecraft's uh, work haven't been successful in some ways, aside from the, you know, the, like, say, The Reanimator and From Beyond by Gordon Stewart. But those are actually complete reimaginings of those stories. If you read those stories and watch those films, you'll notice that they're not really, it's not like a, you know, uh, interp- it's an interpretation. It's not an, a straight-up adaptation of those works. But with what H.P. Lovecraft has is atmosphere. There's a lot of flashbacks. There's a lot of things told, retold, um, accounts of stuff. And it's atmosphere that really is the driving force of the story. It's not so much action. So just keep that in mind. You know. Uh, let's see. In the Belly of the Beast by Jack Henry Abbott. Uh, basically I read this a long time ago and uh, you know I think I was in my 20s feeling you know isolated you know lonely and I somehow found this book and it's a series of excerpts that Jack Henry Abbott wrote to Norman Mailer they're they're letters that Abbott wrote to Norman Mailer uh, while he was incarcerated and it uh, you know kind of painted this brutal and unjust picture of uh the American prison industrial complex, you know, it was like this kind of unflinching look at life behind bars, uh, told in a series of letters. And I, if I remember, the book is broken down. There's like an introduction by Mailer, and then there's twelve chapters, and it's there's no narrative. There's like no real chronological. It's just literally this like these uh, you know musings of this guy's experiences in this horrible place. Um, 
What's interesting and tragic about this whole story, Mailer uh, you know, supported Abbott's bid for parole, and eventually uh, Abbott got out of jail in, uh, in, in 81. Uh, the, the book got incredible praise, um, and there was gonna, they were going to run a, um, on July 19th, here are my notes, July 19th, 1981, the New York Times ran a glowing review and literally the day before that review surfaced, Abbott got into a fight and killed somebody. He was arrested, convicted of manslaughter, and returned to jail for the rest of his life. And eventually he killed himself. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the vibe. You know, this guy made a lot of mistakes in life. Um, and ultimately was just a victim of his own if you want to call it weaknesses or proclivities. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a heavy book made even heavier by the real life component of things. Now, continuing along with the crime <laughs> theme here, we have, uh, the executioner song by Norman Mailer. And, um, I've always been a big fan of, of Mailer, you know, his, uh, you know, the, the, his, a lot of his work, he has journalism, novels, you know, he's articles, like he's all over the map with his work. But this particular work is um, The Life and the Execution of Gary Gilmore. Um, what was interesting about this is that this particular book was a, was a big part. It was, it was something that was discussed, uh, or, you know, with respect to the debate over the reinstatement of capital punishment because Gilmore was the first execution to take place in the U.S. Uh, once the death penalty was revived. So, I mean, it's like uh, historical, has historical relevance too. And um, you know, it's, just a, it's just a really sad uh, book of a, total, a life just wasted. And you get the sense of, you know, just how horrible and brutal, like a you know, senseless murder is, you know. And, um, you know, this, the, the disdain, the remorse that even Gilmore himself had for, for doing them, for killing people. You know, it was like stupid, it was a gas station, you know, murder, robbery kind of scenario. How it affected the families, you know. And, and the most powerful part of the book is like the night before his execution, he gets to spend time with his family. And that it's just like, you know, heart-rending and... Um, yeah, it's definitely a must-read. Once again, not a very, not a feel-good book, but definitely something to check out. And then uh, we have *In Cold Blood* by Truman Capote. It's a nonfiction novel, and uh, it was sort of an emerging media, I guess, at that point. And he was um, Capote was given props for writing a nonfiction novel, even though. There had been some work like that prior to that, but he was given this, like, you know, because it was, like, one of the more, probably the first commercially successful book in that genre. And um, it's definitely, uh, you know, they made a film out of it, which was great. And uh, it's a story of quadruple murderers, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith. And, um, you know, if you're into true crime, that kind of stuff, definitely check this out. It's uh, uh, Steps head and shoulders above a lot of the true crimes that's out there. So 
because I mean it's written by a guy who actually is a, an accomplished writer. So, so yeah, I mean that's um, another heavy book that I wrote. That I, another heavy book that I uh, got into. So the last two on this list are horror fiction. Uh, one of it is you know, The Shining by Stephen King. Yeah, you know, most people are familiar with the with the movie, and um, you know Jack Nicholson. But the book, if you haven't read the book and you've only seen the movie, I definitely suggest you read the book because it's a it's a little it's different. There's a different tone. Um, Jack Torrance is a different character. It's not so much, uh, you know, via it, there isn't there isn't Jack Nicholson chewing the scene you know chewing the scenery like in the movie. You know, Jack Torrance in the novel has his own personality and he has a different sort of, uh, you know, twist. So a lot of you probably read this, but once again, it's a book that I've reread by Stephen King a couple times. Last but not least, a relatively new book called The Ritual by Adam Neville. And once again, this is a movie that a lot of people have seen as a film, which, uh, showed up on Netflix a few months ago. Once again, this is, the novel is markedly different, drastically different than the movie, actually. Uh, it's a, basically a group of British guys. They go on a hiking trip. You know, they've all been like lifelong friends. They're trying to keep their friendship going. But you get the sense that everyone's kind of moving apart. As childhood friendships, or even, you know, say college friendships, that tends to happen over the years, like, graduate college you know you're spent four years with some some guys you're real tight you guys think you're gonna be friends forever and then uh you graduate everyone one guy gets a job here this guy's got to move away this guy gets married like one dude grows a mustache and he becomes a, you know uh whatever a cop or something like that and then you find that as the years go by you start seeing each other less and less and then the get-togethers seem more and more forced because one guy decides, he, you know, you know, this guy here is not really, he's not keeping up with us in our lifestyle. So that's kind of what the setting for this book is. It's like a bunch of these guys, these British guys, go out on a hiking trip in Scandinavia and they take a shortcut, which is always, always a bad choice when it comes to horror novels. Never take a shortcut. These guys take it. They find death, a black metal cult, and weird forest folk, weird supernatural forest folk, and some real intense monster action. So, um, so yeah, it's a very, very good book. It's a tur- you know, it's a page turner, if you will. And I, you know, even if you saw the movie, definitely read the book because it is a totally different experience. So there you have it, guys. Um, you know, I hope uh, that was fun, and I hope there's some stuff in here that might have piqued people's interest. And uh, if there's more interest to do another one of these, because I can go on and on and on into infinity about books that I read. I mean, there's still, even now, I'm thinking of books that probably should have been on this list that weren't. For example, there's no books by Harry Cruz, a guy that I love. And um, I couldn't think of a single book of his to put on here, even though I've read several. And it, was, it wasn't so much that I couldn't think of one that was good enough. It was like, which was the right book to put on there? There's no Flannery O'Connor. 
Actually, there's no women on this. So Flannery O'Connor would have been a great entry into this. Um, you know, Wise Blood, something like that would have been great. So she's not on here either. Uh, you know, then there's tons of other, uh, you know, there's no Henry Rollins on here. You know, Get in the Van would have been great. I feel like that is almost like a gimme. You know, it's something that we just assume that that's important because it is that that tome of a written experience was huge, hugely influential on the way I saw the world and how I wanted to do things with the bands I played in. So anyway, we're going to wrap it up. And uh, until next time, I hope everyone is enjoying themselves and I'll see you guys soon. Take care.